Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, hi, listeners. This is Season 3, Episode 25, brought to you by Lifetree at PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. So my name is Rick. I'm author of Spiritual Grit, which just released a couple months ago, and a couple years ago, The Jesus-Centered Life, and I'm editor of The Jesus-Centered Bible, which, by the way, if you don't already have a copy of The Jesus-Centered Bible, I can't imagine a better summer gift. Like, have you ever given a gift to somebody just because? Wouldn't that shock them if you just gave them a gift that wasn't their anniversary, their birthday, anything? If you, if that at all sounds like a great idea to you, and there's somebody special in your life that you want to do this for, give them a Jesus-centered Bible. It will change the way they read the Bible. So we'll put a link to the Jesus-centered Bible on our site. So today we're launching into the second episode that focuses on what we might call the tough side of Jesus. So what we're doing for June and July is we're paying ridiculous attention to these apparently contradictory aspects of Jesus. The fact that he's shockingly tender and also shockingly tough. And in June, we're going to tackle the tough part. And in July, we'll tackle the tender part. So today's it's interesting. What we're going to focus on today is I actually have a partially completed book proposal for a book about what we're going to talk about today, but I have never been able to complete it, or maybe I haven't had the guts to send it to a <laughs> publisher. But it, my book proposal is called The Cursing Jesus, <laughs> and its goal was to simply explore why Jesus used such strong language with people so often, and what that actually means for us in our relationship with him today, and how that renovates our experience of him and maybe our cleaned-up, churchified ways of thinking about Jesus. So whenever I mention that I have this book proposal for, called The Cursing Jesus, I always get a lot of really strong response from people, and they're like, go write that book. I'm not sure why I haven't done it yet. But today, uh, we're going to explore this sort of unexplored aspect of Jesus' personality, one that uh, really does seem to run contrary to the nice ways we think about Jesus in our culture, and in order to dig into this, I, of course, had to find an expert on cursing, <laughs> and that's why Steph Hilbury is joining me today. So uh, she's told me in no uncertain terms that she is an expert on cursing. <laughs> I don't know what that means, but Adam said Rick, that he doesn't might— it, doesn't it say you're not supposed to lie oh, in the Bible? Curse you. <laughs> <laughs> so bad. <laughs> so— Adam, today, I didn't know that we had a, a bleep button. Adam claims we do. He will not have to use it with me, but I, I hope I hope he doesn't have to use it too much with Steph. But, and Listeners, I'm not sh- for the record, I do not have an expertise in cursing. Oh, okay. I don't know where this oh. salacious rumor began, but it is unfounded. Oh, well, like Lily Tomlin used to say on the Laugh-In show, never mind. <laughs> I guess I got that wrong. Well... Maybe she doesn't have expert status on on cursing, but we have had interesting conversations about this whole issue of profanity, not just a profanity in our culture, but did Jesus use profanity? And if he did, why did he? And if he did, well, how does that change our impression of him? How does it change our relationship with him? So we're going to start off talking about what we might call gratuitous mm-hmm. profanity in our culture, 
which Steph and I have already talked about, we, we both agree that often the use of profanity in our culture is sort of a creative cop-out. It's a lazy, cheap way to shock people, and teenagers often, uh, I mean, I'm around teenagers a lot, and um, it's amazing how much really raw, profane talk is normalized in teenage culture. And in fact, if I'm in a public place and I'm with my kids or there's kids around and I hear it's usually teenagers using really raw language, I will, much to my family's chagrin, go up to them and politely ask them to stop uh, because it's so offensive and they don't seem to be aware of their surroundings and their circumstances and why that would be an upsetting thing for families that are there. So uh, I think, Steph, you called this the potty mouth phase mm-hmm. <laughs> or something like that. I went through a potty mouth phase as a teen myself. I think I was probably a middle school age. And I was a good youth group kid, um, but this was sort of when I was I was insecure about maybe being labeled as sort of a goody-goody Christian. And so I had a mixture of friends. Some were youth group kids and some weren't. And I think around my, my friends that weren't youth group friends, we experimented a lot with profanity at, at that age. I think we thought it made us seem cool or more grown up. I definitely recognized kind of objectively as much objectivity as a 14-year-old can have that that this was sort of my attempt to fit in, and it wasn't really um, a great motivation to use bad language. And thankfully, I grew out of it. So I can relate to so, teenagers so who you use say. profanity. So. so you say you've grown out of it. Yeah. We'll, we'll withhold judgment. You know, it's interesting that you say you didn't want to be seen as a goody-goody. And it's fascinating because my daughter Lucy, who's in college now, one of the things she hated when she was in high school is that people who didn't know her very well treated her like she was that, like mm-hmm. she was like a saint mm-hmm. or something, and she just hated being treated like that. And in talking to her, one of the things I realized was that she felt like she was treated as a caricature instead of a real person. Now, she never went through a potty mouth phase, but I can understand why somebody would mm-hmm. if they felt like they were being a, a caricature in people's minds, that you weren't a real person with you know, a, a breadth of emotions and things like that. So, Well, profanity is so common now, and I do think that teenagers particularly, but adults were not exempt from this. We, we want to fit in. We don't want to be kind of an awkward outlier. And so I think sometimes it's easy to slip into cultural behavior because that's what's accepted, and we don't want to stand out. And you've mentioned before when we were talking about this that another obvious thing is that sometimes we use profanity to convey the level of emotion that we're trying to express. Mm-hmm. We use uh, very strong language to convey very strong emotions. And of course, teenagers have lots of strong emotions, so that's another reason why they have them. There's an author named Timothy Jay who wrote a book called Cursing in America. I don't, I don't recommend you Google that, by the way, <laughs> especially if anyone's around while you're Googling it, because uh, you might see a lot of things you don't want to see. But his book is called Cursing in America, And he says in his book that teenagers also use curse words uh, as a tool to sort of separate themselves from adults. So it's a developmental tool Mm -hmm. to to kind of ensure their independence from adults. So, but the question is, why is there such a prevalence of profanity, um, especially in in adolescent culture today? And I wrote an article uh, not too long ago that quoted a senior named Libby Barron, a high school senior in North Carolina, and she said, we're desensitized to the profanity displayed in the media. 
we don't even notice it anymore. So what she's saying is the stuff we watch and listen to is so full of profanity, it's just become the norm. It's desensitized. It's lost some of its shock value, so we we say it in almost a common way. And my wife and I like to watch, as long as we can stay awake, uh, Stephen Colbert at night. And I, I was shocked because I'd only had a limited contact with his his previous show uh, that was on Comedy Central. But I had a lot of respect for Stephen Colbert. He's a Sunday school teacher. He He's had... Uh, fascinating interviews with faith leaders, and he's quite knowledgeable because he's a believer himself. And so we watch his late-night show, and he uses profanity a lot in his monologue. He uses the F word rather often. And this is still shocking to me, and I find myself saying out loud to my wife when this happens, I wish he wouldn't do that. I think he's slumming when he does that. He's using a way of leveraging laughs that if you're a really good comedian, you don't have to use that. That's that's my, kind of my take on uh, Stephen Colbert's pro- profanity. But we all know that the that a lot of comedians use really raw language to get really big laughs, and I think that's a a, a cheap way of getting a laugh. Myself and and you you said I, I mentioned the White House Correspondents Dinner where. Uh, it's always every year, kind of like when I hear clips from it, I kind of wince. But you called it the Roman Colosseum. So what do, what do you mean by that? Well, the Roman Colosseum was such a bloodbath. You know, everyone would get together and watch these horrible things happen to people. And I feel like that's how the Correspondence Dinner is. They they roast each other, which is in just the spirit of it is kind of malicious and verbally, they skewer each other, and they all kind of laugh. But I just feel like it's it's all awkward and uncomfortable, and it seems like a very strange way for that industry to get together and congratulate each yeah, other. Yeah, it, it reminds me of that old thing that parents say to their kids: "It's all fun and games until someone gets hurt," and that's what roasts and the White House Correspondents Dinner feel like to me. It, I, I don't find it funny to have to watch other people creatively skewer somebody. <laughs> I I, it's not funny to me, but apparently a lot of people think that you is know, funny. You know, I recall it being quite the thing in junior high, and some part of me feels like maybe we should grow out of that. Oh, maybe so. There's a lot of junior highness right there now in our culture that we that we should grow out of. Say a little junior high. <laughs> yeah. So we have our list of of bad words that we think are okay. And that's a shifting standard, mm-hmm. uh, and and it's also shifts from person to person and family to family. What is and isn't okay. We have a movie rating system that tries to rate what is really profane and what isn't profane, and and it's interesting that uh, sometimes we watch movies that are like a couple decades old, and it's a PG rated movie. And I think, oh, if it was twenty years ago and it was rated PG, it must be really family friendly. It's amazing that even when you go back in time like that. There's some stuff in PG-rated movies that I think, ah, that makes me wince. I wish my daughter wasn't watching this right now or hearing that. So we all have our different standards. I'm a little skeptical about uh, movie ratings. I don't know if you are, Steph, but I've had to kind of learn to read between the lines about whether I think something is acceptable for my wife and I or our whole family to watch. I don't know if you've ever had that issue with ratings. On you know, I, I kind of forget ratings are even out there. But oh, well, I told you she's I, an expert on cursing. <laughs> my husband and I don't have kids, and I definitely think you see things like that differently through the filter of being a parent than you do um, when you're just kind of the two of you, Yeah. you know, in the evening watching Netflix. <laughs> well, the church, of course, has historically banned profanity, or at least at the very least, said, you know, you, you certainly can't use profanity in the church building. 
Uh, it's fine once you walk out the door, you know, do what you want. It's kind of a compartmentalized view of this, but everybody kind of knows in a kind of cliched way, oh, if I'm in church, I probably shouldn't say any bad words. So there's this kind of compartmentalized thing that the church has done around profanity, and yet, I'd say in the last 10 years or so, there's been this interesting shift in Christian culture where it's been, if you're a committed Christian and a, a strong follower of Jesus, and that's not in question, then you kind of get a pass with your profanity. Like, it can be cool and sort of edgy to be a Christian who sometimes uses profanity. I have personal experience with friends of mine who I think of as um, true, committed followers of Jesus who often use profanity. Mm -hmm. And I've often wondered, now, why do they feel the freedom to do that? Um, I, I mean, sometimes I, I on, on occasions, I have used profanity— and usually it's to tell a joke to my wife when nobody else is around, <laughs> just because I like to see her shocked. Um, but uh, I would never make a practice of it, and, but I do see some people who do mm -hmm. make a practice of it and, it, and it doesn't seem to impact our impression of their maturity as followers of Jesus. So I, I'm not sure if you've seen some of that same kind of uh, trend in the church, Steph, or not, in the last 10 years. Have you noticed um, more and more of your Christian friends feeling more comfortable using mm. profanity? I I feel like my Christian friends don't use profanity. They've been pretty consistent by not adopting it. So I think that probably it depends on your circle of friends. But I definitely think that as a rule— Profanity is used more often in culture, and that has also drifted into Christian culture as well. Yeah, I, 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 I just I, I sometimes read Relevant magazine, which is a magazine that appeals to I'd say skews young mm -hmm. as far as its readership, and it's interesting what normal standard they're shooting for in the kinds of things they cover in Relevant, and sometimes the people that they interview, they they they've cast a broader net in the culture than just Christian culture on purpose. And that necessarily includes uh, profane things, uh, not just language, but other things that sometimes they cover as normal and important to everyday Christians. So it's an interesting shift in our Christian culture as well, but here's my premise. Jesus uses the equivalent of profanity very often, more often than we would like to think, especially when he's dealing with conniving people or people who are hypocritical. He uses—the premise here is that uh, the kinds of words Jesus used sometimes to describe people that he was trying to call out was so strong and raw that those people said, I can't believe he just called us that. We're going to have to kill this guy. It actually was—Jesus's strong language was a primary motivator for the religious leaders to conspire to kill him. That's how profane, quote-unquote, Jesus' words were to them. They were that upsetting. So uh, I thought Steph and I could take a look at some of these encounters that Jesus has with religious leaders and others, just to kind of get a level set around Jesus' use of strong language. So there is a central chapter in the New Testament that really kind of encloses most of the, the way that Jesus felt comfortable using language with people that he was trying to call out, and that's in Matthew 23. 
and in my Jesus-centered Bible, the the uh, the subhead over this chapter is it, it says Jesus criticizes the religious leaders. Criticism is a little light <laughs> compared to what Jesus actually said. So we're uh, Steph and I are gonna. I'm gonna read this, and we're gonna uh, uh, slow down and pay attention to Jesus in this passage, and we're gonna talk about some issues around the language Jesus uses. So um, let me. Uh, I'm gonna skip around in Matthew 23 because it's literally the entire chapter. So I don't want to read the entire chapter, but let me set it up, and then I'll skip around. So uh, Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples. So there's the context. There's a crowd around him. There's this disciples around him, and there in the crowd are the very religious leaders he is about to talk about. They're right there in the midst of them. So it's a tense sort of situation. And so Jesus says, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, who again are standing right there, are the official interpreters of the law of Moses. So practice and obey whatever they tell you, but don't follow their example. For they don't practice what they teach. They crush people with unbearable religious demands and never lift a finger to ease the burden. Everything they do is for show. On their arms, they wear extra-wide prayer boxes with scripture verses inside, and they wear robes with extra-long tassels, and they love to sit at the head table at banquets and in the seats of honor in the synagogues. They love to receive respectful greetings as they walk in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi. Then he goes on for a little bit and says, well, don't let anyone call you rabbi. I'm the only rabbi there is. And then he goes into, what sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees? So he's like looking them in the eye right now. What sorrow awaits you? You're hypocrites, for you shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You won't go in yourselves, and you don't let others enter either. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law and you Pharisees? You're hypocrites. For you cross land and sea to make one convert, and then you turn that person into twice the child of hell you yourselves are. Blind guides, blind fools. I'm just going to skip through some of the names he calls them. Let's see. You ignore the important aspects of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. You tithe, but you neglect the more important things. You're blind guides. You strain your water so you won't accidentally swallow a gnat, but you swallow a camel. You're blind, Pharisees. He says it again. He tells them sorrow awaits them again. He calls them hypocrites again. He says, you're like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but filled on the inside with dead people's bones and all sorts of impurity. <laughs> Jeez. Outwardly, you look right, like righteous people, but inwardly, your hearts are filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness. He goes on to say, uh, let's see, skipping down to the end here, he calls them snakes and sons of vipers. And how will you escape, escape the judgment of hell? It just goes on and on. It's like the worst, most awkward moment you can imagine in a crowd situation, where he's just, there's a crowd surrounding these very respected people, and he's going on and on with all of this strong language. So, Steph, when we think about the context of this and why Jesus did what he did here, this is so outside of, quote-unquote, the character we think of Jesus mm -hmm. as a happy, nice, sweet, lamb-carrying-on-his-shoulders mm -hmm. sort of guy. This is like, wow. Uh, you almost want to put your arm around Jesus and say, Jesus, take a breath. <laughs> Just <laughs> hyperventilate for a second. Uh, but he just goes on and on through the entire chapter. So what? What when you think about the reason why Jesus might be using such strong language in this situation, what pops into your head? Well, he's obviously 
trying to part of the thing he always did was try to point people to the heart and not to the law. I mean, that was a big part of his ministry was to get at this idea that the more religious you are, the more pious you are, the more outwardly pious you are, the closer you are to heaven. And he was pretty committed to tearing that idea down. Um, And I think, Rick, you have actually a, a great additional thought about why he might have used such strong language related to his larger um, journey to the cross, really. Oh, yeah. We were talking about this the other day that I did a—my uh, wife and I created a 10-week uh, sort of Sunday school class for adults or teenagers. It was, it was called In Pursuit of Jesus, and it's one of the favorite things I've ever done as far as leading people through this experience. We created this. It was published about 10 years ago or so, and uh, one of those sessions, we were trying to help people understand the progression that Jesus had through his ministry on earth, that he wasn't just one note all the time saying the same thing, doing the same thing. He had a plan for how he was going to introduce the idea that he was actually the Messiah, the Son of God, and he had a plan for what he came to do. His mission was to not only rescue humanity by paying the price for our sins, but the real purpose there was to reconnect us in intimate relationship with the Father, because that intimate relationship was broken through the betrayal of Adam and Eve. And so he's really focused on on a couple of things here, his mission, but also he had to outsmart uh, the enemy of God. He had to do things that made the enemy of God unaware of what he was actually doing. Uh, he had to make the, his enemy, Satan, unaware of what his actual mission was. So on this whiteboard, I'll always remember this, in our, this session of In Pursuit of Jesus, I drew a line on the whiteboard heading up, like uh, going up the, the side of a mountain, and that's the first part of Jesus' ministry. And he's often saying things to uh, people he's just healed or, is to, or to people he has um, rescued from something. He often says to them, now don't tell anyone that this happened. Don't, don't go telling everyone, anyone about me. He's trying to keep the lid on himself in the early part of his ministry because he needs to buy time to introduce himself as Messiah, to make the connection that, yes, I'm the long-awaited Messiah, I'm the Son of God, and he's not yet ready to head to the cross, which is his mission. So he's trying to keep people from making his journey to the cross sooner than he wants it to be. But then there's a clear delineation where Jesus says, okay, we're ready now. And he starts doing things on purpose that will get him to the cross in the end, because in the end, Jesus wasn't lynched by a lawless gang of religious leaders. He chose the cross, and it was the Trinity strategy from the first. So in order to get himself to the cross and to get himself to there in a legitimate way that wouldn't raise uh, alarm or suspicion, I guess is a way of saying it, is he purposefully offended the religious leaders so that they would conspire to murder him just as they did. And he was really good at it. <laughs> he was really good at offending people in power. And But he only did that when it was time for him now to head to the cross. And he's not committing suicide, he's just inciting these people to do what they eventually did. And that, that's really all part, of his, all part of his plan. So there's this other reason that he's using this very strong language, which the, the bigger picture here is that 
Jesus did not feel like it was inappropriate to use profane language when it served a higher purpose for him. I mean, you could you can say that. That's a, like a stunning statement right there. He didn't feel like profanity was a bad thing when it was serving a higher purpose, and in this case, the higher purpose was to incite the Pharisees to create a murderous conspiracy around him. Well, and I think this is part of this focus of the series is to examine these difficult aspects of Jesus. I mean, if you think about this behavior, it's completely inappropriate and outrageous. I mean, I think about what would it look like in a modern (laughs) setting, and to me, it looks a lot like what we're seeing on Twitter right now with a Mm. lot of our leaders just kind of this mudslinging back and forth, and we lamented how base it's all become and how we wish we were more civilized and more courteous. And I look at this story, and I think that he's he is tweeting mud in this instance. I mean, that it's kind of that sort of equivalent. And I think that we would, if he was here right now and he was doing this, we would all be so totally confused by it. <laughs> we would just, we don't know this guy. What on earth is he up to? And it's one thing to say these things about your quote-unquote enemies or conniving hypocritical, hypocritical people, but right after he tells Peter his real name is Peter and says, you know, you're going to be the foundation of the church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. And Peter, and then he, and then Jesus uh, says, and by the way, I'm going to go to the cross. Um, and Peter says, by, by no means, Jesus, that's not going to happen. Jesus says to Peter, a friend, get behind me, Satan. So calling somebody Satan, <laughs> I mean, it doesn't work so well now to do that. And back then it was shocking. <laughs> So he even called his friend a profane name that must have been shocking for everyone there to hear it. So the question is, um, we know profanity isn't nice. Mm. Like, we would never think of uh, our nice grandmother using profanity. That's why sometimes in comedy movies they have a nice grandmother Mm -hmm. using profanity, because it's so bizarre, it's funny. It is funny. But is it a sin? That's the real question. Mm. When Jesus called the Pharisees, for instance, a brood of vipers— um, was he cursing them? Well, we know Jesus never sinned, so now we have this tension. The way you just described this, too, that it was like a Twitter war uh, of words. We know Jesus never sinned, so what he was doing was not sin. But, huh, <laughs> why is it sin for me, then? If I were to do that, I think I would feel like I had sinned. So when we think about the tension around profanity, let's talk a little bit about the context around this, Mm -hmm. and when it's appropriate and when it isn't, if it ever is appropriate. Mm -hmm. So you've talked a little bit, Steph, about in your own life, you've kind of tried to process this for yourself. Talk a little bit about the boundaries you've set for yourself around profanity. So I was thinking about the kind of three instances in which I tend to use profanity, and... (laughs) Such a funny statement. (laughs) If we still use teasers for an episode, that would have been it. I was thinking about the three situations where I've decided to use profanity. (laughs) I don't... So two of them, I definitely, I, I will not tell you, though these are good reasons. I mean, they're not. They're not good reasons. One of them is if I am in a heated conversation and I'm emotionally charged and I want language that matches how I'm feeling. Or, or you know, the person I'm discussing is emotionally charged and 
we're both just kind of using our vocabulary as a way to communicate the intensity of the feelings that we're having. So that's one one time in which I will use profanity. And I certainly will not tell you that that's an appropriate use of profanity, but it's definitely a situation I find myself in. Well, we said before that profanity is used sometimes to be congruent with the level of emotion that you feel. And I guess you could make a case that in this encounter Jesus has with both Peter and with the religious leaders, that he used stronger language to be congruent with how strong he felt about these things inside. Yeah. So that fits. I mean, I certainly have I'm lots of people that I know who have heated arguments and don't use profanity, so I, I don't necessarily think that you need to use profanity, but that that's an instance in which I will sometimes use profanity. Another is if I am... Again, this is sort of a junior high reason. Another is if I'm, you know, around some people who are maybe using profanity and I don't, I kind of want to fit in. So sometimes I'll use it in that circumstance, which, you know, insecurity is never a good reason to do anything. But the third reason that I'll use it is sometimes a little bit more thoughtful. I will on occasion use profanity if I'm with someone who has kind of a, they have pigeonholed what it means to be a Christian. They have a very kind of Sunday school, white glove wearing, hymnal toting vision of what a Christian is. And they they don't know because they haven't really encountered and engaged in a relationship with a, an authentic Jesus follower to recognize that you don't fit that mold. And so sometimes I will use profanity just to kind of shock them into paying attention. You're a rabble rouser. Well, just a little bit. And sometimes I'll do the same thing actually with Christians who I feel like sometimes get really prim and proper about the rules for being a Christian, what you do and don't do. And and these rules can be endless. I mean, they're there, there were rules about pantyhose and Christian women, you know, 20 years ago. I, I mean, myself broke every rule about <laughs> pantyhose myself. So, so when I'm I, a rabble rouser. When too. I say rules, I, you know, I mean, we, this is one of the things Jesus was really getting at with the Pharisees is we Christians just love, we love our rules. We love to adopt Christians do this and they don't do this. They do this and they don't do this. And one of those rules frequently is we don't use profanity. And every now and then, I like to poke at that, and I, you know, I'm certainly not going to stand here and say, "Well, that's not." I, I, I think that's appropriate, and everyone should do that. I just am saying that that's one motivation I have used for profanity. What's interesting is that it kind of embedded in what you're saying there is you're you're using it to poke at what you're calling a religious spirit, what Jesus branded as hypocrisy, or, you know, you you cross the ocean to convert one person, and then you make them twice a child of hell as you are. Uh, he's he's using this strong language to poke at their religious veneer, he, and the point here is that Jesus is never not loving the person in front of him. We often think of these things like when he's clearing the temple or he's saying all this bad stuff to Pharisees that he must hate these people, and that's not possible. Jesus is never not loving the person in front of him, and if you are stuck in your default setting of hypocrisy and self-righteousness, self-righteousness means I am the source of my righteousness. That is the deepest darkness we can live in, because we are closed to the outside sources of rescue and righteousness that we desperately need. So if you are closed in that way, what will open your doors? I think Jesus used strong language sometimes with these kinds of people 
so that they would get so worked up that their doors actually would fly open for a little bit, mm-hmm. that he might actually get access to their heart when they throw open their doors because they're so offended by what he said. That sounds funny, but Jesus was a lot more shrewd and, and strategic than we are relative to loving people. He understood who was in front of them and what he needed to access their heart. And I think with some people like this, he needed to poke past that religious facade to get at something real, and so he used strong language to do that. You could say that he used profanity to expose the true nature of a situation, to kind of rip away the lie or the facade of something and get at the truth about it so that everybody could feel that truth. Or he used it to shake up a default setting that is inherently evil. So, uh, again, the, the idea is to use leverage that's strong enough to shake up the thing that's not right. He also used it to convey the proper level of emotion himself, the thing that we've talked about already. But now let's talk a little bit about the things that we really, we should never do. We should never really use profanity for there. And you mentioned before, Steph, I thought was interesting, you you had a, a way of understanding whether profanity is used to convey emotion or to expose something, and when it's simple name-calling. Mm-hmm. So what's the difference there? Well, I mean, I definitely think that sometimes we use profanity. You know, I think about the the stubbed toe incident where you, you run into something and an expletive pops out of your mouth. But then there's profanity where you are calling someone a name. You're using profane language to tear someone down. You're using it in a pejorative way to insult them. Um, you're using it to devalue someone. You're using it because you're angry and you're wanting to hurt them. And th- these words don't necessarily have to be expletives as we understand them. I mean, they can be they can be rather innocuous words like, oh, you're so stupid. You know, I mean, that stupid is not a word we would consider as profanity technically, but in in the spirit of trying to de- demean someone, to me, that's an inappropriate use yep. of language. And you're saying that what's obvious to us, but we often forget that words have real power. They have the power to either build up or tear down. That's not a rhetorical power. It actually is true. You know, We all know people, and we know ourselves, that somebody can say 30 nice things about you, but one person says something that really hurts, and you can't get that out of your mind. It just embeds itself like a little weevil in your in your head, and you can't get it out of there. You, you go back to it over and over again, because it hurts, and it sticks there. So these things really do tear down, and profanity often tears down in the it way does. that you're, you're talking about using it, and that's why Scripture is full of warnings against cursing and profanity, mm-hmm. but they're always in the context of tearing down somebody. Well, when I think about some of the music that's out today, my husband and I were walking on college campus, oh, I don't know, probably last summer, and we could hear someone's music coming through their window, and it was just a stream of profanity, and it was you know, kind of, I would say, in a way that was just categorically insulting to women. Misogynist. Oh, yeah. It was, it, and it was kind of shocking, really, that this was kind of pumping through the the pathway. And to me, that's just, to become desensitized to that kind of thing and callous to it so that it doesn't even impact you is a shame. I, I think that there's, that doesn't do anyone any good. Yeah. And, and profane, by the way, it, it means literally to treat something sacred with abuse, irreverence, or contempt. So if you think about it in that way, 
if you're treating sacred things irreverently, that, that's like saying in your marriage, there are things about my wife that I know that are sacred to her. Like there are things in her past that are so tender that we have to talk about those things in a certain way. If I were ever to use profanity to either joke about that or to, to poke at that, it would be a violation of our relationship. It would be an intentionally hurtful thing I do in our relationship. So that's being unaware of what's sacred and not treating sacred things with the reverence that they deserve. So, for instance, <laughs> like when I said, I've, I hear kids all the time use the F word in a casual way, well, that is treating something sacred, by the way, the act of intercourse, in an irre- irreverent, contemptible way. I mean, that at its basis is, I think, is, well, why, why is the F word wrong? It's that. It's treating something with contempt that God says is sacred. And there's probably lots of examples of that, but you said something, too, before, Steph, that I really liked. You said profanity should never be used like a shotgun. It should only be a scalpel. What do you mean by that? Well, I think that we've kind of talked about some of the instances in which potentially provocative language might be used strategically to get someone to reframe or to to kind of stop them in their steps so that you can have a a connection that leads to, you know, some kind of revelation or truth. Obviously, Jesus was an expert at wielding a scalpel. I would say most of us are not surgeon-level <laughs> scalpel users. Um, you know, and I think a lot of times w- we do resort to more of a shotgun approach, which is just, I'm feeling intense, or I don't even really know what's motivating me. I'm just going to spray the, you know, the perimeter with foul language. (laughs) This is not an ideal situation. And certainly as Christians, not something I think that we probably want to find ourselves doing. Yeah. Again, it's a violation of relationship with others and with God. Last thing uh, to, to mention here is that profane talk, when it, when it makes others stumble, is clearly wrong. So we are warned by God that if our actions, uh, warned by Jesus, that if our actions cause others to stumble, we're violating our call to love our neighbor. There's no two ways about it. Uh, There is research out there that says people who curse more are also respected less in our society. I think that's true. Even today, I still think that's true. I think it's true, yeah, and they have fewer deep relationships. That's the other thing the research found. And the, the interesting thing here is then if if we're in, determined to not cause others to stumble with the words that we use, so and we still have strong emotions, and we still there are times when it's appropriate to use our words as strong levers. Well, what else can we do? And mm. here's an interesting little rabbit trail we'll, that we'll close with. What if you challenged yourself to only use words that you would also use when you're praying? So when you're actually talking to Jesus, would you use that word? That doesn't mean that you might not use a profane word when you're talking to Jesus. If you look at the Psalms, David certainly used strong language with God when he was upset or frustrated. That, that's undeniable. So I don't mean that you just clean up your language for Jesus. But if you wouldn't use it when you're praying or talking to Jesus, then why would you use it with someone else? It's like saying, well, when the teacher's out of the classroom, we can do whatever we want. That, that's treating Jesus as if he wasn't there that he's not present in your life. So so that's a standard, I think, that we could use, that if it's not appropriate in the, in the context of prayer, then maybe it's not appropriate elsewhere either. But you can also have fun with substitutes for strong language, and we were having fun with this before we started um, with uh, Rachel 
who, who's uh, our marketing assistant who's sitting on the other side of the glass here, she brightened up as soon as I mentioned substitutes for curse words because she had quite a few. I'm going to give you some of mine first, and then I'll tell you some of hers. <laughs> so I, I think it's funny, if you can do this in a funny, kind of snarky way, to use Shakespearean words <laughs> as substitutes for curse words. Like, like uh, you could say, a pox upon you. <laughs> you have to say it that way, though, or people think you're a nerd. Actually, people still people think I'm a nerd. Still yeah. Think that, yeah. I, yeah. But I still think it's funny to use Shakespearean words like that. Or uh, Rachel suggested a Shakespearean phrase could be, get thee to the nunnery. <laughs> I, I don't remember what play that's from, but it's, it's basically used in the context of someone who's a bit sexually promiscuous. And so, mm. so the phrase is, get, get thee to a nunnery. Uh, that would be funny to use with somebody. Or there's other, like, I like English words. Um, that are substitutes for cursing, like, um, oh, bugger. That's a good one, because it, it you can really you can really pronounce the B there. Or uh, Rachel said also, she has a friend who says, shiminy cricket, to replace the S word, which I think is interesting. And, and instead of saying, uh, using God's name in vain to exclaim something, she says, God bless America, as a substitute. Um, I think I used to say this often, and now also it's probably nerdy, but I think it's still fun to use this sometimes. You could say what Mork used to say on the old Mork and Mindy show. He used to say Shazbat as his uh, curse word. So I think it's not really a curse word if it's a word from a made-up alien (laughs) world. It's not really a curse word. Profanity rules, according to Rick. <laughs> but I think Rachel's standard here was that uh, you 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 get words that kind of start with the same letter as the word you're trying to avoid, but you fill in the blank from something else. So she, the last one she gave me was, um, instead of, you know, that ubiquitous F word, she knows people who will say, fudge monkey, which sounds, still sounds kind of bad, actually, when I think about it. But But this is a playful, more playful way to sort of, be respectful for the people in your life and not causing others to stumble by just using substitutes for some of these words. And you you could make a case that because regular profanity has been so normalized, if you use some of these words, mm-hmm. it will get the kind of shock value that you once got from the mm-hmm. formerly profane words. So that's something you could try out in your everyday life. If you have a word, by the way, that you like to use instead of a curse word, please go to our podcast page— at PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. And this, by the way, is Season 3, Episode 25. So find that. There's a comment section there. Please do uh, send us your replacements for curse words, or you could alternately go to our Pigs page. If you're a fan of this podcast and and uh, love the Jesus-Centered Bible and the other Jesus-Centered resources that we've produced, um, you can ask to be invited into a private Facebook page called The Pigs. It's for people who want to go all in with Jesus, and it comes from a chapter in the Jesus-centered life called Living a Pig's Life. It comes from the pig providing the uh, entire—the pig going all in for breakfast when the chicken only gives an egg for breakfast. So so if you go to the pig's page and and ask to be invited onto the page, um, please, you could post your your, uh, cursing substitute there as well. That would be great. In fact, I will post something on the page and ask the question— of the of those who are already on the pigs page to see what they use as substitutes for curse words. Any last thoughts here, Steph, before we close off? I feel like I I feel like I want to close with some kind of 
um, legal disclaimer that says <laughs> <laughs> we we do not endorse the use of foul language and are only having a conversation about the you know Jesus being provocative and what that could cause us to wrestle with. Yes. But the, please do not go home and start swearing with your friends and family. Right. The PS to the <laughs> disclaimer, though, is obviously it, we can't. We have to deal with the tension that we find in Jesus. Mm-hmm. We cannot skip over it. We can't go around it. We can't explain it away. We have to confront it because that is what draws us into the depths of his heart. And what is true is that he used strong, profane language in certain situations. And if we can accept that and live in that tension, we will start to appreciate and enjoy the beauty of Jesus for what it really is, instead of skipping over the parts of him we don't quite get. Mm -hmm. So it is an important thing to consider. Nevertheless, Steph's disclaimer stands. (laughs) So so again, head over to painridiculousattentiontojesus.com and check out, again, Season 3, Episode 25. And uh, by the way... If you haven't already checked out the Simply Jesus Gathering, please do. We'll have a link for that on our site as well. Come hang out with a bunch of Jesus-loving people for a few days in the beautiful Colorado Rockies. You won't regret that you made the the trek to go do this. Uh, By the way, if you don't want to miss any of these episodes, just subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from, and you'll be sure to get them every week. So we'll talk again next week. 